Hello, I'm Ray Wright, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Mike Smirklow, former Service Source CEO, co-founder of Next Coast Ventures in Austin, and author of the Amazon bestseller, Mr. Monkey and Me. Today, we will be covering three main areas. One, Mike's lessons learned from taking Service Source public. Two, the three most important attributes of deciding to make a venture investment. And three, the motivation behind writing Mr. Monkey and Me and the key takeaways. Mike, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Thanks, Ray. Well, it's great to be here. I really appreciate y'all taking the time. Uh, my quick background is I graduated a long, long time ago. First person in my family to ever go to college. Started up my career in financial services, jobs, public accounting, investment banking. I put in the book. I learned a ton, but hated both of them. Along the way, I got my MBA at Northwestern. Moved out to Silicon Valley in the late 90s, was part of the dot-com boom. My first operating job was with two legendary entrepreneurs, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, early employee at LoudCloud, became Opsware, stayed on through IPO, and then raised a small pool of capital to buy a business. That business was ServiceSource. I bought it when it was a small company, a couple of million of revenue and a handful of employees, and ran it as CEO for the next 12 years. By the time I retired, it had 3,000 employees, close to 300 million in revenue, and was and still is a publicly traded company. And then I started a venture capital firm that you mentioned, Next Coast Ventures in Austin, Texas. We invest in early stage technology companies in what we call the Next Coast, which is basically anything outside of the valley or markets like it. Next Coast Ventures, that must be the coast of the river that runs through Austin, right? Yeah, that's right. There, there is water there. And uh, you know, it's so funny, a handful of years ago, we had this idea that you could build great companies outside of the valley. And uh, now everyone's moving to Austin. So the real estate agents love it, but everyone else is kind of saying, okay, stop the presses. Well, let's dig into many topics, but let's start with one I think our listeners who are primarily entrepreneurs and operating executives of B2B SaaS companies. And that is you used a very different method to kind of launch your first company. And you used a search fund to purchase service source and ultimately all the way to taking it public and reaching the levels that you just mentioned. Tell us a little bit about your experience using a search fund. Is it still a good option for aspiring entrepreneurs today? Yeah, Ray, I think it's a great option. I had had the chance, as I mentioned, I'd worked with Ben and Mark and seen what great technology-centric entrepreneurship was all about. And I wanted to do it. The problem is I didn't have an idea of my own, at least a good one. I had lots of ideas, not too many good ones. So I came across the search fund, which is really an opportunity. It's also called entrepreneurship through acquisition. And it does provide folks that don't have a specific idea they want to pursue a way to go acquire an existing business. And what it means is, well, you're not starting from scratch. When you buy the business, you search broadly and you find something to buy, you then take it over and run it. And so you become the CEO through the acquisition. So you still get all the entrepreneurial activity, but you just don't start from scratch. And I think it's a great way for folks that don't have a burning idea or a, a mission in their mind from day one. 
Well, for those aspiring entrepreneurs who don't have that great kind of differentiated idea today, do they have to raise money as part of the search fund or are there large institutional investors that will partner with you to help fund that acquisition? Well, interesting enough, without sounding too commercial, Next Coast is actually has a fund that invests in search funds. So I, I just throw this out there, but there are a handful of institutional funds and high net worth individuals that invest in search funds, but it's typically a two-step process. You raise a small pool of capital, call it a half a million dollars or so, and that provides you a couple of years of a modest salary and it covers all the expenses you need to go acquire the business. So it's a kind of a two-year journey. Typically, it takes about 18 to 24 months to find a business to buy. And you can do it on your own money, but most people do raise a, a small fund that then converts into the ownership of the company you acquire. Great advice and great insights. So Michael, let's move to the second topic, and that is your role as the CEO and chairman of the board of ServiceSource. You did that for about 11 years, and then you left the CEO role to form and launch your own venture capital firm. What motivated you from being an operator to a venture capitalist? It's so funny, Ray. I don't motivation or exhaustion might have been the better uh, word in all seriousness. You know, I had run this business. It was a really wonderful business. So I got really lucky. And by the time I, I woke up, it was my three and a half years of public company CEO ship. And also almost a decade before that, I really was out of steam. I had four young children, looked around and said, do I want to go operating something again? And Kenley, I just know how hard it is. It's the whole ethos of the book, Mr. Monkey and Me. And I looked at it and said, is the best use of my time and energy to go try and run something again, or really what my passion was about helping entrepreneurs. And I think I can do that in multiple ways through mentorship, through capital, through board oversight, and other advice. So that's really what I want to do. And it was really the driving force behind starting Next Coast Ventures. You know, it's interesting, Mike. Recently, I've hosted other founders of brand name companies, including DocuSign, LinkedIn, and Marketo. And one of the common themes that every one of the co-founders shared with our listening audience was once it stops being fun or you feel that you're just a little maybe wore out and just don't have that same energy you did five years ago, it's better for the company and better for you to hand it over. And it sounds like you made that same decision. Absolutely. I have utmost respect, almost awe, if you will, for the entrepreneurs that start something. And you know, Jeff Bezos or Mark Benioff being great examples, they start something and they just keep going. I don't know how they do it. I have massive admiration for them, for entrepreneurs like that. In my case, I read about the book. The reason I went to become an entrepreneur, which was to have an impact and be part of a team and really create a culture that was customer-centric, they hadn't all gone away, but they certainly had been mitigated. And one of your questions on being a public company CEO, it's just a very different game. And for me, the enthusiasm, the energy and the motivation and passion weren't there. And that's a really good indication because I just think then you're not a great leader. You're not a great really anything and everyone knows it. And so when I made the decision or it was made for me, I guess, as I talk about in the book, it was really a bit of a relief and allowed me then to take some time off and then go start the venture capital firm. It was interesting. We were talking to Court Lorenzini, who's the founding CEO of DocuSign. And he said he looks at companies in three segments. There's that concept on a napkin to product market fit, which he loved. Then there's the hyperscale, really growing it to that 100 million above, which you did so well. And then third is maximizing scalability for profitability. And that was something that he just didn't enjoy doing. But let me kind of move into a different topic. And that is you now as a venture capitalist. I was listening to you on another podcast and you talked about three aspects or variables that you use to evaluate investing in an early stage company. 
Can you share those with our audience? Yeah, of course. The real answer is we've got a dartboard in the back room that we throw a dart at. But uh, that, all joking aside, you know, we, we look at it and say, there's things that you can analyze on the market level. So our first start with is how big is the market? And I mean this because there's a lot of great businesses, as you know, that can serve a small market and be a good business, but they're not going to drive venture-like returns. So it really does have to start with a big market. Then the second attribute is how innovative is the solution? And I give an example of right now, if you want to think about ride sharing, it's still a really big market. But it's hard to imagine someone's going to come up with a better idea than Lyft and Uber. So you go with market size and then idea, how big is the idea or innovative is the idea. But then the third and by far the most important element for us is the entrepreneur. Is she what we call a glass eater? And we use this weird term and it's kind of a cringeworthy term when you hear it, but it really speaks to the passion, the energy, the commitment required to be successful. And our tagline at our firm is built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And that doesn't mean we know everything. It just means we know how tough the job is. And so it's almost all of our decision after the first two boxes are checked is, do we think this entrepreneur is going to be able to take the business from that napkin idea to some level of scale? Maybe not all the way there. And do we believe that they're going to do so in a morally and ethically appropriate way? So that's where we spend the bulk of our time. So Mike, how do you evaluate whether they're a glass eater? Are there personality attributes that are shared across entrepreneurs? Is it really a case-by-case basis? It's a great question, Ray. I mentioned this in the book. One of my most interesting things of going from an operator to an investor is I kind of had this belief that there was a secret formula, that there was some attributes that were shared across entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, I don't think there is. You know, I've seen introverts, I've seen extroverts, there's all sorts of flavors of entrepreneur. For us, what the book talks about is a formula is does the person have self-awareness? Do they know where they need help? And are they willing to do all the things that are required to drive the business forward? And so I think maybe it's, I don't know if it's a personality, maybe it's an energy level, maybe it's a just an indication when you spend time with them. I think the greatest entrepreneurs, you can just see it in their eyes that says, I'm going to make this successful, or I'm going to come, I don't want anyone to die trying, but I'm going to come real close. I'm going to push myself and my team to really make this mission a reality. And I think that's just something you pick up on. I wish it was one formula that we could say, yep, that's the personality trait. We just haven't figured out yet. Well, let's do what all great entrepreneurs do, and that's learning how to pivot. So let's pivot to the book that you've mentioned a couple of times, Mr. Monkey and Me. Can you tell our listening audience a little bit about the backdrop of why you decided to add author to your already long list of experiences and successes? Well, I joke and say it's a little bit like starting a business. If I knew how hard it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. But in all seriousness, I really became frustrated. I enjoyed blogging and writing as I moved from an operator around what I called the other stuff. The S can be substituted in, but it was really around just different parts of becoming a CEO and running a business or an entrepreneur. And the more I did that and the feedback I got, it became pretty clear that there was a pretty broad gap of content. There's all the content out there that I call like eating a bag of Doritos when you're hungry. You know, what does Elon Musk wear for everyday work? Or what does Mark Zuckerberg do before 6am? Those are meaningless. For the average entrepreneur, it really doesn't matter. It's not going to give you much guidance as to how to do the job. And the other end of the spectrum, there's some great content on business plans and how to do formation of ventures and all that stuff, which is really important. But I couldn't find anything that talked about the mental aspect that really said, here's what the job is about. Here's what you're going to have to go through. And then here's a formula, not that I mastered, but I've seen from my various roles that will help you as a current or aspiring entrepreneur really develop this mental toughness. And that's what I call the shape formula in the book, but it really is a framework to say, 
and hopefully a practical framework that you can apply to get you through all the ups and downs of the day job. And that was the motivation. It really was trying to give something back to future and current entrepreneurs. Got you. So for all those aspiring entrepreneurs and CEOs listening to today's podcast, put away your hoodie. That's not going to make you the next Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> yeah. but let's learn more about the SHAPE model. And I believe SHAPE stands for self, help, authenticity, persistence, and expectations. Can you share a little bit more about that model and a little detail on each one of those aspects? Sure, Ray. Well, so first and foremost, again, I'd underscore that talk about the book is an anti-memoir. It provides some cringeworthy uh, anecdotes about things I did wrong. So <laughs> to be clear, this is from me watching great entrepreneurs like Ben Horowitz, LoudCloud, my own experiences, and now having invested over 50 different companies. It's an aggregation of all of that, to be clear. So each one of these, it's a little bit like the Maslow's hierarchy needs. I think they build upon themselves, although not required. The S, as you said, is really about self-awareness. Do you understand yourself? Do you know your strengths and weaknesses? And can you adjust accordingly? That leads to H, which is help. So once you know where your weaknesses are or areas you want to improve on, can you go find a network or extended network of folks that can help you? I'm constantly reminded that anything that you want to do in this life, someone somewhere has done it before you. And so can you go find a group of people that will help you on your journey? I found that by getting better at asking for help, that led to more authenticity and there's reams of books on authentic leadership. So mine's only a chapter, but my own experience of developing that, that led to a persistent mindset. It is a long, arduous journey. And so the P really is about how you can develop the persistent mindset. And that leads to E, which is expectations. I think the hardest part about the job is realizing what it's going to be like at the start, in the middle, and at the end, and trying to keep a balanced perspective throughout it. So those are the five attributes. And in the book, I describe them. I give some stories around it. But then I also give some specific what I call monkey minders at the end of every chapter to try and bring these somewhat abstract concepts into reality. You know, it's how I spent Friday night was reading the book. And I just wanted to dig a little bit into one of the attributes, and that's help. And I was real, I love this story about Bill Campbell, because Bill is known as kind of the mentor of Silicon Valley. And what an incredible man. But he didn't tell you what you wanted to hear, did he? He told you, man, you're really stupid, aren't you, Mike? <laughs> yeah, well, anyone who knows Bill and what a wonderful human being, I got to meet him. He was on the board of LoudCloud. He used very colorful terms, so not PG rated language. But yeah, I went down to see Bill. I'd been struggling. I was trying to find a head of sales. I'd gone through four head of sales, unsuccessful hires, and literally had this feeling of like, well, if I don't get this right, then I'm going to be on the chopping block, or maybe I already was and didn't know it. So I went down to Bill, met him at the old pro down in Palo Alto, and basically said, you know, I just can't figure this out. And he said to me, well, who's your coach? That's why I don't have time for a coach, Bill. I mean, I got to go hire a head of sales. I got this board stuff. And he, he did in very colorful language, looked at me and said, you're a blankety blank idiot. <laughs> and then proceeded to tell me, you know, listen, Steve Jobs has a coach. The founders of Google have a coach. Tiger Woods has a coach. The best and the brightest seek professional and personal development in all aspects. Why would you think you don't need that? And it just was a, like everything else that Bill was so good at, it just kind of shifted the paradigm to say, huh, okay. And then quickly led me to some specific actions because I did know a lot of people that had hired and managed very successful sales organizations. And that led me to another individual who really helped me turn my challenges on the hiring the sales round. But yeah, really, really amazing pointed advice over a beer at the old pro. 
Yeah, I think one of the things I loved most about the book was some of those great stories that you told because it really crystallizes a lot of your concepts. And the one story that really resonated with me, and you know, this is the metrics that measure up podcasts. So we measure everything. And as a leader, I've measured everything, even looking at personality traits, cognitive skills, et cetera, before we hired anyone into whether it was sales, marketing, customer success, et cetera. But you introduce, I believe Dono was his name, and it was someone at Service Source that Maybe if you used more historical measurements, he wasn't a top performer, but he was critical to the success of the company. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Yeah, Dono, we use a different name. He's still a great friend. The story was basically he had been a jack of all trades, master of none. And I think anyone who started a business, you have these cultural warriors, really where someone who embodies what you're trying to build, the enthusiasm around customers and the type of place we wanted to work. And Dono was that person from day one. We just, as we started to scale, the hard part was there wasn't a specific role that worked for him. I tell the story in the book, you know, I felt like I was a real big CEO now. Oh, this is what we do. We bring in McKinsey-like discussions and we had this grid and high performance and all this stuff that is really important to scaling a business. But what got lost on it was some of the softer aspects of it. And Dono ended up in the, you know, not a ton of potential, not a great fit for his current role. And the recommendation was to remove him from the organization. And literally, I never forget the moment in the conference room with my small executive team, it was like a pin dropped. We all kind of looked at each other and said, really? What type of company are we trying to build? And are we going to live specifically by this scale factor model that we have? And it was really a telltale moment. I turned to my team and said, what do you think we should do? And through a lot of collective brainstorming and just discussion, we determined that there was a place for folks like this that we would, it was our job to find a great fit for him, not only just because of what he brought for cultural aspect, but really it embodied what we wanted to do as a team and as a company. And to fast forward to the end of it, he ended up staying at service service longer than me, had massive impact, multiple roles throughout the company. And again, really shifted our perspective and helped us develop a more authentic leadership for both myself and for my team. Yeah. And one of the things that kind of reminded me of was the H in your shape model help. You actually had the confidence to say, guys, I don't know what to do. Help me with this decision, which I thought was really compelling. Yeah. And to the Mr. Monkeys, to those who are listening, this is the caricature of, in my mind, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I tell stories in the book about how he he shows up at the most inopportune time. You know, everyone has this issue with imposter syndrome, or I certainly did. And do I know what I'm doing as a CEO? Early on, to turn, and I think that's why your podcast is so helpful, but you know, to turn to your team and say, I don't know what I'm doing. When you're new in, your, in any leadership role, that's a really scary moment. And I would tell you that my imaginary monkey friend was jumping up and down on the table saying, you know, what the blank are you doing, Mike? How are you admitting weakness? But oddly enough, like most times, once you do that, wow, the vulnerability and then magic happened because of my willingness or at least my ability to do that. And I think that's really important because entrepreneurs, especially after you take other people's money, right? You want to kind of show that you're in charge and you know how to make decisions. So showing that vulnerability of, I don't know exactly what to do here. I need help. To me, is such an important criteria to success. And honestly, Mike, one that I didn't succeed at early in my career, when I became a first-time CEO, Bill Campbell was an advisor to our company. And I was telling him about some of our challenges and here's what we're going to do but I was telling him what we were going to do and kind of my sales spin. It's like, yep. here, I got it under control. I know what you're doing. He's like, he goes, right. He goes, stop selling me and tell me what the challenge are so we can talk about it. Yep. Yeah. That is both Bill Campbell and also a really good summary of 
how hard it is to do though. I mean, because you're right. You're the entrepreneur. You're the person who's leading the organization. You've got all the answers. That's what I think a lot of a lot of those BS blogs also kind of feed that into it, the fake it till you make it. I hate that term because there's something about trying to imagine a bigger future, but this is stinking hard. And I also think the world opens up when you ask for help in a magical way. People like to give help. They like to give advice. So there's a lot there. Yeah, I'm going to take this help theme a little bit different direction. And sometimes I think maybe I'm a little too old school, but I see all these influencers on social media like LinkedIn offering their advice. And I'm like, I'm not sure that that help is really going to be valuable to all those people out there who haven't been through the wars. Do you have any opinion on all the helps that's being offered online today, Mike? Yeah, well, I love it like uh, any other advice. Take it with a grain of salt. I think the best help, and it's interesting, Ray, the way you described it with Bill, the best help for me is, and it's really hard to do, but it's actually very specific to the situation. And I think the hard part with generic, and I even, you know, here I'm talking about a book that is a bit generic, but is the help that is important for if you're running Airbnb and you're ready to raise a billion dollar series E round. That's very different than if you're running a landscaping business back in Dayton, Ohio, sharing our Ohio roots, but it's very different. And so I think part of the challenge with the help or the broad scale social media is it's not personalized. And so you really have to seek folks that are, I think we all about this with mentors. I tell this to our founders all the time is that it's great to have mentors, but make sure A, they're still relevant meaning they're still active in something. Not, not 20 years ago, I ran sales at Dell and now I'm trying to talk about sales because a lot's changed, but also they're stage appropriate. So they're able to understand, hey, I'm at the ideation stage or I'm raising a series A or I'm bootstrapping the business. It's just most important to say, what stage am I in? And then finding a mentor or advisor or getting information that's highly relevant to the stage because a lot of the generic stuff is just that, it's generic. Yeah, I think that's really good advice to make sure that it's stage appropriate. And honestly, I think it also needs to be sector appropriate. And yep. I'd like to get your opinion on that. If someone's been really good at doing networking equipment sales through channels, but you have a SaaS company that's direct sales in the healthcare space, I'm not sure all the experience is quite as applicable. What do you think? Ray, it's so funny you said that because I get asked all the time. ServiceSource was a sales organization, as you know. We had inside sales and outside sales. And so there's a kind of a misconception that I'm a sales expert, which I'm not. I was a sales-oriented CEO. But I always say, there's let's go through the factors. Even say if it's B2B SaaS, right? What's the average ticket price? Who's the buyer? Is it individual? You know, there's all these factors you just went through. And then you get into sector. So I think it's incredibly important to look at this and say, what is the mentor or the advice coming from someone who knows the industry, knows the sector, but then also is willing to double click or triple click into all the various attributes. And that's a mistake I made with hiring a head of sales. I thought, well, this person has run sales before, but yeah, is it direct? Is it indirect? Is it consumer? Is it big ticket? Is it small ticket? There's so many factors. So you got to be really careful when you get getting advice on any aspect, but certainly on go to market. Well, let's wrap up today's episode with one last question. And that is, Mr. Monkey and me, I heard what it represents, that fear, uncertainty, and doubt, that imposter syndrome, but have you always thought about that feeling as Mr. Monkey, or how did you come up with the title for the book? Well, it's, it's interesting. I've always had this, I used to call it an inner voice when I was younger, and I started to personify it, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And it was just a way for me, it was a little bit of, I guess, a coping mechanism. So to me, it's just been a voice inside my head that said, you can't do it. And I talk about this in the book because I think a lot of people have it for various reasons. I think just everybody does, Kenley. So for me, it was a way to personify it or bring it to life. 
and then start to address it and say, okay, that's just my inner voice, my inner monkey screaming at me. Literally two minutes before the podcast, he was in here saying, no one's going to listen to this podcast, Mike. What are you wasting your time for? So starting to recognize, that's how I started to personify it. And then when I wrote the book, which is really about how it, it came about my life, this inner voice, and then what I did to try and address it. It's never going to go away in my case, but I think it's a friend of me, someone who can help me, but still is always going to be there. And so the title of the book just really wanted to capture my journey with this. But more importantly, hopefully others out there, wherever they are on their journey to recognize that you're not alone, that everyone has this. And again, provide hopefully some practical tools for you to try and cope and maybe turn that voice into at least something that you can act upon in a positive manner. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, I speak to a lot of early stage CEOs and CFOs that want to talk about metrics and how do they measure up and how do they benchmark themselves against like company peer groups. But very seldom do we talk about, you know, what are the other personal challenges and those emotional challenges that you go through? Because that's not my strength, but I'm going to highly recommend Mr. Monkey Me to all those entrepreneurs who are questioning whether their idea can go from concept to success. So thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast, Mike. Thanks, Ray. It's been an honor to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics That Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.